Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today we're speaking with Jacob Remus, Assistant Professor of Public Affairs and History at SUNY Empire State College. His new book is Disaster Citizenship, Survivors, Solidarity, and Power in the Progressive Era, published by the University of Illinois Press. Jacob Remus, welcome to Working History. Thanks very much. So your book, Disaster Citizenship, focuses on how ordinary people responded to natural disasters and how that began to change in the early 20th century. So I'm wondering if you can give us um, just a brief overview of the book before we launch into more of the substance, and also um, what you mean by disaster citizenship. Absolutely. Well, the, the book really starts with the question of how did people respond to uh, the growth of the state in the progressive era? That mm-hmm. the, In the progressive era, you get all of these new ideas of what the state should be doing for its, for its citizens. Uh, ideas of relief and rescue, right? Uh, relieving the poor, relieving widows, uh, rescuing people from, uh, rescuing children from factories. And all of these Ideas come, of course, famously, of course, come with new types of knowledge and new types of people uh, doing that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, social workers, for instance, or newly professionalized soldiers. Uh, and so my question was, how did people, how did ordinary people respond to that? And one of the ways into that is to think about disasters, because disasters are a moment in which uh, there's all of a sudden a lot more need mm-hmm. and in which... Uh, for a long time, uh, the government has responded to that need. But in the progressive era, you start getting a response that's um, uh, m- bigger, more professionalized, run by social workers. And my answer was what I, what I call disaster citizenship, which was a sort of complex answer. One was part of it was that people really wanted that help. They weren't saying no. In fact, they tried their hardest to maximize the aid, the material aid, the money, the in-kind aid that the government would give them, Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes even doing what the government considered fraud or cheating in some way. At the same time, they wanted, perhaps not surprisingly, they wanted the least amount, they wanted to give up the least amount of power and authority over their own lives. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when it came, for instance, immediately after disasters, when there's a, after the disasters I was looking at, when there's a housing shortage because the the fire the the fire had burned down houses or the explosion had had destroyed the houses, mm-hmm. where did people go? Uh, if they could, they really avoided going to the official uh, shelters or the camp, the tents that the army had set up. Because when they did that, they had to have they had to give up power over their lives. They had mm-hmm. to live in the way the soldiers told them to. They had to live. They had to wash their children when they were told they had to eat the food they were given. And so if, so people preferred often a much worse condition, physical conditions in order to keep that power over their own lives. So disaster citizenship refers to that sort of balancing act. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways they balanced was to build solidarity with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you see unions organizing on more inclusive lines. You see uh, churches uh, sort of coming together and figuring out new ways of being in the world. So disaster citizenship, I mean, in this progressive era context is something very specific, um, trying to 
limit the power of uh, social workers over individuals' lives, mm -hmm. trying to crossing borders at a moment in which the borders were were getting hardened. Uh, in response to large immigration in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But at the same time, uh, I also want to think of disaster citizenship as something that's not historically bounded. It's what we do after any disaster in which we reimagine what our relationship is with the state. And so we see it mm -hmm. after Katrina. We see it after Sandy as people try to figure out what should we as citizens expect from the state and what should we demand from the state. That's really interesting. And just um, real quickly before we, um, you know, before we talk a little bit more about your case studies, when you say the state or the government, are we talking about um, states as in the, you know, the U.S. states? Are we talking about the national government? Are we talking about both um, in terms of disaster response? So we're talking about both. Mm -hmm. um, this The federal government ha ha takes on more responsibility for disaster relief. Although, in fact, Congress has appropriated disaster relief uh, to victims since the early days of the Republic. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think 1807 is the first is the first one. Mm -hmm. But it is absolutely growing. Salem, um, the Salem fire, which is one, 1914, which is one of the disasters I, I write about, was um, that received Salem received two hundred thousand dollars from the federal government. Okay. The, uh, someone from the quartermaster corps eventually arrives to give it out. Plus, it's actually a moment in which the labor, the the brand new labor department, U.S. Labor Department, starts to organize the the U.S. Employment Service, which was designed to shift workers around the country in a sort of more rational way, so that mm -hmm. if there were too many workers in Massachusetts, they could go to wherever Maryland, where there was a need for them. And Salem is actually the sort of acts as a test run for that uh, for that project but it's also municipal government it's also it's also um, state government uh, and in fact I also write about Canada where it's there's also obviously a, a federal system but the, mm -hmm. the lines are somewhat different to me what's really important is uh, to to use Jim Scott's phrase who sees like a state mm -hmm. and so okay. The people who are seeing like a state are who I am calling a state. And some of those people are actually working technically for, for private organizations, right? for their social workers who are working for the, the charity organization society or something that is quasi-private. And this mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. of course, one of the things that, that we think about in American welfare history is um, what Michael Katz calls the – I think it's him – calls the, <laughs> the – uh, Calls the uh, the franchise state, right? That mm -hmm. that there's that there's this total mixing between public and private, and the money flows in both directions, and the authority flows in both directions. But to me, what's important is how are people thinking, and how are people knowing, and trying to understand uh, the people who they're helping. Okay, great. And so um, you mentioned uh, just real briefly a couple of the um, you know the the examples that you give in your book. So let's talk um, just uh, again, kind of briefly um, about your case studies. You focus on Salem and Halifax, and so can you just tell us a little bit about those two places, those two um, the the disasters that happened in those two places, and also why you chose them for this particular study. 
Of course. So uh, Salem and Halifax were both uh, port cities around 50,000 people in the period we're, we're looking at. Both uh, have some industry. Salem, in fact, had at this point become an industrial city with uh, textile manufacturing and leather, uh, leather industry. The Salem fire in 1914 starts in a patent leather factory and it spreads around the city and uh, about 18,000 people are made homeless or jobless. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and of those families, actually not the people, but of the families, 43% are French Canadians or their or French Canadian descendants. Okay. So Salem is this is an industrial city. It's full of immigrants, uh, French Canadians, Irish, Poles. Those are the three those three big groups, I guess. Mm-hmm. But but fires at this so fire big industrial fires, and we think of. Chicago, of course, but mm-hmm. also or San Francisco or Boston. There were these massive fires throughout the 19th century in North America, and they really come start coming to an end because um, firefighting technology gets better, firefighting professionalism improves, and uh, actually the coming of the automobile impro- uh, stops it, both because you get um, fire trucks arriving more quickly, and also streets are clearer mm-hmm. uh, because cars need and other flammable stuff sitting in the middle of the street, spreading the fire when it comes. Mm-hmm. So Salem is one of the last of these big industrial conflagrations that spread throughout the city. And one of the ways you can see that is almost nobody dies. You mm-hmm. get these 18,000 mm-hmm. homeless or jobless, but I think it, the death toll is six or something, something right. very minimal. Three and a half years later, in December 1917, uh, in the middle of World War War, or towards the end of World War I, uh, there's a munition ship explosion in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, a munition ship waiting to go off to the, the front in France uh, collides with another ship. It sparks a fire, and it's a massive explosion. People like calling it the largest explosion, the largest man-made explosion before the atomic bomb. That doesn't actually have very much meaning when you start thinking about what does it mean to have a big explosion, but mm-hmm. that gives us it gives a sense of how big it is. About two thousand people die. About twenty five thousand people are made homeless or jobless. So in many ways, these are not commensurate disasters, right? There's much more suffering in Halifax than mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Salem, but you get these sort of interesting similarities in terms of how people respond. Um, I chose them. Uh, largely because of this Canada connection that you have Canadians in the United States or, or descendants of Canadians in the United States in in Salem. You get Canadians, obviously, in Halifax. Uh, Halifax is also, the, the whole Maritimes in Canada has generations of outmigration largely to New England. So you mm-hmm. get a lot of um, Nova Scotians in Massachusetts and Massachusetts uh, famously, and at least famously in Halifax, gives a lot of aid to Halifax. And part of that aid was that the same people, literally the same three people who helped design the relief system in Salem, get on a train and go to Halifax and design the relief system in Halifax. And so you see these same people doing the same work. Mm Mm-hmm. So I was just going to follow up on that, um, you know, sort of taking taking from there. What were the responses then to these disasters? Um, you know, you mentioned the three people that, you know, went from disaster A and moved to disaster B and sort of set up the response to that. So um, if you could talk a little bit about that. And then also, you know, the progressive era is very much about notions of order and disorder. And I'm curious to know how those sort of conceptualizations of order and disorder shape these responses. 
Yeah, so the the response, the official response is all about trying to reestablish order. Mm-hmm. If you think about the people who were were doing the the work of relief, who tended to be club women and sort of progressive reformer men, their their image of the city was something that could be knowable through reports mm-hmm. and forms filled out in triplicate and reading documents, right? Very this new at that point new way of understanding the city through through study. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden when the disaster comes, none of those things work anymore, right? The the city directories are outdated, the maps are wrong, the maps depict depict streets that aren't there anymore. And so what they what they really want to do is reestablish order. And you get you get these actually these fascinating comments about how oh we we fulfilled the the immediate emergent needs of coal or for coal or for blankets or for food with a minimum of red tape, but mm-hmm. then you actually look at what they were doing and they were filling out massive amounts of paperwork for each form, for each amount of coal that they give. Mm-hmm. So Halifax the Halifax explosion was in in December and it was Nova Scotia, so it was cold. Right. And one of the first things people needed was coal or blankets. And the very first day, people go to City Hall to to go to this sort of very quickly established relief committee, and there there are all of these all this paper being produced, which is one of the reasons it's a good it's a good thing to study because there's all this paper being produced. Right. Good for and historians, in, right? Exactly. And in Halifax, yeah. all the paper gets kept. In that's actually very in Salem, none of the paper gets kept. Oh, but in Halifax, all of this paper is still there, sitting in the archives. Uh, in fact, the Mormons have have microfilmed a lot of it, oh, wow. uh, which is which is great for people who want to do subsequent work. There's this there's this demand for for writing writing it down. There's a lot of concern about who should be getting aid and who shouldn't. And so there's a desire for authority figures, often priests or doctors or ministers. Sometimes if those can't be found, any middle-class person who's around the shop, uh, like the owner of a store can Mm -hmm. vouch for somebody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so forms signed and countersigned. From the top then, there's that real desire for regularity, for knowledge, um, for committee structure, right? So in how again in Halifax, actually in Salem too, they spend a tremendous amounts of time arguing with each other about what form the relief committee should take. And the first several meetings are about naming people to this committee and that committee and who's mm-hmm. going to be mm-hmm. on the subcommittee. And rep- they read out their minutes and they read out the reports from, from who's talking to the banks and who's doing and who's sending what telegram and, and not a lot of actual work being done. Meanwhile, they're talking. They see all of these people who need help as being really disorderly. They're not going to the right relief station. They're asking for aid for which maybe they're not entitled. They haven't gotten their form signed by the correct minister. So there's this fear of this disorderly mass who is who's going to mess everything up when they're trying to do things the the right way, the right orderly way. Meanwhile, the 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 affected people, the ordinary people, they are actually creating an order that makes a lot of sense to them, right? Mm-hmm. So they go to – the first thing that they do is, or that most people do is go and check on their family, right? Mm-hmm. That is a form of order because mm-hmm. it is, right? It's it's following these, pre, these, these pre-established networks. Mm-hmm. They are checking on people. They're doing actual important sort of rescue work when they, when they go to their – their family's house and 
find someone trapped under a under a board and and rescue them. Mm-hmm. But it looks really disorderly because people are running around the city. They're leaving work without permission. They're going towards the explosion instead, or towards where the explosion was or towards where the fire is instead of away from it. They're rescuing the wrong things. So mm-hmm. one of the things you get in Salem is criticism of people for taking, for, as the fire is coming, for taking stuff from their houses that the observer thinks is not very valuable. Mm-hmm. When it's... When the observer then becomes the the displaced person, he of course understands very well that some things have sentimental value that is not apparent to the outsider. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so you get these sorts of questions about what order and disorder means. And mm-hmm. one of the ways that you see that is in fears of looting. Right. Uh, one of the things we sort of we know from social scientists who have spent 50 years researching it is that there's actually very little looting after disaster. And what looting there is tends to be sort of salvage, right? It's the finding food, finding medical supplies, Mm -hmm. not taking consumer goods. And yet in all of these disasters, in in lots of disasters, and we see this now, but even in the progressive era, you get a real fear of who's going to take stuff. And so you get a lot of attention on law enforcement. You You send in the army to enforce people not being on the streets or they have to have passes to show they're on the street to show why they're on the street. And a, that means of course, these, these soldiers and these police officers who could be doing something useful aren't. Mm -hmm. And it also means that people can't go where they need to go, right? They can't go. And if there's a soldier blocking the streets and saying, sorry, we think there's going to be a looter. So you can't go here. It means you can't go and check on your mother. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, It means you can't go and find your friends. And so the desire for sort of a legible, top-down order often often disrupts the bottom-up, less legible order. What are the broader connections, then, of labor and working-class history to disasters? Uh, well, part of it is that disasters are a moment in which people, people practice a lot of solidarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, of the, one of the things we, we see a lot in disasters is sort of post, what we call post-disaster altruism, of people helping each other in the immediate aftermath or a little bit after the immediate aftermath to help find each other, help dig out survivors or, or bodies. And, and my, my argument is that that uh, post-disaster altruism is not necessarily political, but can be and often is politicized. Mm-hmm. So you can, from that memory of the solidarity that happened right after the explosion or the fire, you can get... Uh, new forms of organizing a union. Mm-hmm. So in in both Halifax and in Salem, you get much bigger unions and you get new ideas of of unionization. So in the the largest employer in Salem, which is a sheet factory, burns down and gets rebuilt. And in the rebuilt sheet factory, it's called the Numkeg Steam Cotton Company. There is a an industrial union uh, when other when other textile workers in Massachusetts were, were rejecting industrial unionism, Salem has an industrial union, mm-hmm. uh, multi-ethnic, uh, it, both men and women. And then throughout the 20s, experiments with these new forms of what a union can do. And so they build a tremendous amount of power for the union uh, in running the factory, uh, including the union essentially takes over or adopts scientific management, but runs the committee that is. Of effic- that does the efficiency work. Mm-hmm. Um, this sort of ends in a 
does it, this ends in problems when the the president, the, the head of the union sort of becomes autocratic. A mayor may not own stock in the company. He turns out to be kind of a boss in unionist clothing. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. by the 30s, there's a, a rebellion against him and um, the communists come in. And, and there's a whole there's a whole new set of uh, it's a new generation, a whole new set of issues. But what you but in the aftermath of the explosion or of the fire, rather, you get these new ideas about how do we come together? Mm-hmm. How can we as ordinary people to rebuild this community that we had in the aftermath of the fire. In, in Halifax, there's a lot of work rebuilding. And, and it's in the context of this emergency of the post-explosion. It's in the context of the, of the war, mm-hmm. of World War I. But you still get a huge boom in the number of unionized carpenters, for instance. So the, the Halifax Trades and Labor Council, the the equivalent of the, sort of the local federation becomes the largest such organization in Canada because so many workers are needed to do that rebuilding work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's both sort of creation of, of new work opportunities, but also these new ideas of how do we come together and express and build solidarity. And what was the relationship between, um, for instance, the organized um, unions that, you know, that you reference the carpenters or whoever they might be, and the, um, the progressives, the club folks, the municipal administrators? Was it kind of an easy relationship? Were they working together? Were they not? Um, you know, I'm thinking, uh, you know, from my own work, in terms of progressive era labor laws, you often have, you know, these two groups with similar interests, but there's a lot of tension between the two. And I didn't know if, you know, in in the context of disasters, if that was the same, if it was different, if it's one of those moments where right after the disaster, everybody comes together, but then that kind of dissipates. What was what was the situation like there? Yeah, there's a lot of rhetoric of everybody coming together. Yeah, there's a lot of tension. Is mm-hmm. the is the sort of short answer, particularly in so Halifax is really the the best example of it, in which the, there's this big relief commission that gets established by the federal government that has thirty million dollars, which is obviously a huge amount of money mm-hmm. in. In 1917, mm-hmm. to to rebuild, and they have this power to rebuild. They're a developer. They're a city planning agency. They're also giving the relief to 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 help people get their give them cash to help them reestablish their lives, um, and that gets wrapped up in. So there's this just wrapped up in this rhetoric of we the we the government we the relief commission are going to in a disinterested way do what is best for the city to rebuild mm-hmm. and these workers who are demanding overtime or are demanding shorter hours or who are demanding more money are standing in the way of rebuilding mm-hmm. the, the sort of the, the progressive rhetoric of disinterest and of sort of technocracy is seen as opposite of the the p- more particularistic demands made by made by workers mm-hmm. in Salem it's a bit more complicated in that the so the 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 union in the in the sheet factory ends up being sort of progressive and technocratic in that they adopt scientific management but part of where that that plays out. Uh, in the more immediate aftermath is a recall election against the mayor. So so Salem has had a sort of, I think of a sort of a traditional Boston Irish versus Yankee fight mm-hmm. for 
a generation or, or for 15 years before the fire. And the French Canadians are on the Yankee side in Salem. They're not always, but they, they happen to be in Salem. And so in that instance, there's, there is this alliance between the, the Protestant progressives or people who are thinking of themselves as progressives and the ethnic workers who I'm looking at against another set of ethnic workers. Mm hmm. So it, so it's mixed, I would say, is the answer. And there's again, there's a lot of rhetoric of everybody coming together, but there is definitely this tension. And the tension really, as I would say always it does, revolves around who's going to have power. Is the are the sort of middle class reformers going to going to have power mm -hmm. in the end and mm -hmm. use it to help others, perhaps, but but have the power for themselves, or are workers going to have power? And the alliances work for as long as for as long as it doesn't matter. But once once there's any divergence, it falls apart. Okay. In your assessment, who sort of came out um, prevailing in terms of the reconstruction of Halifax and of Salem after these disasters? Was it the unions? Was it the um, the progressives? Or did it end up kind of being a mix that you know emerged in the rebuilt areas of these two places? Oh, I would love to say it was a mix, <laughs> but so I think it was more of a mix in in Salem. In uh -huh. Salem, the union really does grow and take a lot of power in in the twenties, mm -hmm. and I would say they probably win there. Although, again, as I say, it's this very mixed win that by that because of sort of internal union dynamics, it all falls apart, and it turns out to be a massive failure mm -hmm. by the by the thirties. Mm -hmm. uh, in Halifax. Absolutely, the unions lose. In Halifax, um, by the mid-20s, the, the labor movement has been entirely broken mm -hmm. in Halifax. And there's, and there's a turn to what's called the maritime rights movement instead of a, a, a class movement. And the maritime rights movement, is, it, it's, you could sort of see it as a sort of nationalist, conservative, cross-class politics. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's both an election in which there's a labor party that – comes in second province-wide. There's a farmer labor coalition that, that's the official opposition in the provincial legislature, but they don't win a single seat in Halifax. Mm. And at the same time, there's a really big strike in the shipyards that is crushed and they lose the union shop. They lose everything essentially in Halifax. Again, it's kind of a contingent, they're both sort of contingent stories, mm -hmm. uh, but at best mixed. Okay. Okay. So uh, let's shift gears just a bit and talk about your methodology about how you got at these stories. Um, you had mentioned earlier in the discussion about the progressives penchant for paperwork and how they, you know, documented everything to the last detail. And yet you said, you know, in the Halifax case, they're all still there in the Salem case, not. So, you know, how did you, you know, how did you kind of approach that and sort of equalize that, you know, as you were looking at these two disasters together? It was really tough. I mean, Halifax is a dream come true. There were, uh, everyone who received any aid had these forms uh, called face sheets, which is a, actually, I learned recently, it's a, it's a phrase that social workers still use for the demographic sheet that you start oh, a file with. And so it says, who was in each family? What organizations, what churches and what unions they belong to? Uh, how much money they all made, whether they owned or they rented, mm -hmm. where they were now, where their families were. I mean, right, you, you could do an entire project just based on – and then every time every time they had any contact with the relief committee, 
there was a paragraph written about what happened and mm. who was given what. You could do an infinite number of urban history projects based on these based on these documents. And they all still exist in kind of a, a weird arbitrary order. But I, I sampled them. I did a I did a sort of a very an oddly social scientific thing of I did a simple random sample and I, I looked at every sixth box. Oh, okay. Uh, and have a big database. Take of all note, of these. people looking for um, new projects. But yeah, yeah go ahead. Absolutely. <laughs> if you're at all interested in Canadian urban history, do it. It's yeah. amazing. Uh, plus, uh, there was this. There was a a guy named um, Archibald McMechan, who was a kind of a man of letters, who was a, a professor and librarian at Dalhousie University, who got himself appointed the official disaster historian, and he essentially did oral histories with people. Mostly middle class people, because those are the people he knew, but mm -hmm. an entire collection of reports that were collected, that he collected at the time, and oral histories that he collected in the months afterwards. And so there's this incredible wealth of what people were doing, who they were doing it with. Really amazing, amazing resource. And Salem has none of that. Salem had, Salem had those same face sheets. I saw blank versions of them, mm -hmm. but they were not kept. Mm -hmm. So incredibly frustrating. And, so and why, I, why weren't they kept? Did they just, were they just destroyed as sort of part of, you know, I, weeding I out so. old records? Or Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so I th actually, the, most of them, I mean, I think that these forms were used, they were developed by the American Red Cross. And I mm -hmm. think that they were used in almost every disaster. And as far as I know, uh, in this period, and as far as I know, they exist only f still in Halifax because in Halifax they were used – people received pensions and widows received pensions and blind people received pensions for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And so you have people receiving pensions from the Relief Commission into the 1960s, maybe into the 70s. And so these files were kept because the bureaucracy continued right. to exist, mm -hmm. whereas in most places the bureaucracy is created and then very quickly – as soon as it's not needed, gets dismantled. Mm -hmm. And then presumably all of their stuff gets chucked in a dumpster. So it, the really unusual one is, is Halifax, that it's kept rather than it's unusual that Salem is, is thrown away. Mm -hmm. And so for Salem, I, I sort of did traditional social history stuff. I read the newspaper. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I looked at church records and union records when they existed. The union story that I keep talking about, it, it was – Fortuitously, a bunch, a couple of Yale researchers got interested in this story in the late 20s and early 30s and went and did a lot of interviews, and their papers all still exist. Oh, great. Um, mm -hmm. So it was much more little bits here and there. And so it was really, it's really uneven. Those source spaces are really uneven. In Halifax, everything comes from these two, essentially almost everything comes from these two or three collections. How Salem comes from a bit here, a bit there. And in some ways, it made me work a lot harder for the Hall for the for the Salem section. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think that that made um, at this point, after many revisions, I think it's evened out. <laughs> but I think it made the original draft, the dissertation version, the Salem portions better because I what it wasn't just a recitation of here's what I found in a, in a particular collection. It mm -hmm. was, I really had to do the work of here's newspaper, here's one newspaper, here's a second newspaper, here's a close reading of a, a photograph. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had to be much more creative. Right, right. So, so I was able to ask different questions of the, and this is where the comparative piece is really helpful. Mm -hmm. I was able to ask different questions of each of the disasters. I could see how the relief 
money affected family economies in Halifax because I could see how much people were making and I could Mm -hmm, see them mm -hmm. receiving pensions into the 20s. And so I was able to, so once I was able to understand that in, in Halifax, I was able to then look at Salem in a different way and say, what should I be looking for in Salem? Mm-hmm. How did families respond in Salem? And I couldn't, look, I couldn't see in as much detail by looking at their earnings records, but I, it, meant, it, it, it told me where to look in the newspaper. It told mm-hmm. me how to read these stories in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. Mm-hmm. And the union story in, uh, in Salem, and a, there's a church story also in Salem that helped me read Halifax in a different way. I had much better act, better sources for church for for church history in uh, in Salem because the Catholic the cardinal in Boston at the time kept really kept all of his correspondence mm. in a way that in Halifax churches didn't have. But I was able to ask different questions and therefore go back to Halifax and say, what should I be looking at? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And and this might seem like a, a strange question to ask about a book focused on New England and Maritimes Canada, but given this is the Southern Labor Studies Association, what role does the U.S. South and sort of approaches to Southern history um, play in your thinking and in your work generally? It's a kind of a biographical answer. I started this project 10 years ago in the wake of, of Katrina. Mm-hmm. Literally, I mean, the, the Katrina happened, it was my second year of graduate school, and I was taking a, an urban history, a, a seminar on urban history of North America with, with Sally Deutsch, and she, we were reading on the, I mean, it had been pre-scheduled on the syllabus that we were going to read um, Carl Smith's book on the Chicago fire. Mm-hmm. And he talks about, in that book, he talks about these, sort of, these stories of looting and of vigilantism that come out of the, that come out of the fire that are not that are clearly untrue. And so, and he, he's a very literary historian. He, he reads these, these texts as what do they tell us about the cities and how people imagine cities mm-hmm. and, and fears of order and disorder. Um, and, and Sally says to us, and it's the week we're going through the books. It was the first week of class. We're reading, we're going through the syllabus and it's, that's the week of Katrina, where we're mm-hmm. hearing all of these stories of the mm-hmm. rapes and the murders and the looting coming out of New Orleans. And Sally says to us, mark my words, in a month, we're going to learn that it's not true. And sure enough, she was right. In a month or two months, actually, it started coming out in a week, we started hearing this counter-narrative of Katrina in which it was not people being animalistic and violent in when the state goes away. In, and what what was needed was the army or the police or whoever. In fact, it was the opposite. It was that mm-hmm. people came together and they practiced mutual aid. And sure, there was some looting, but that was to get water and food and medicine. Or it was sort of symbolic violence against perceived oppressors. And in fact, it was the the National Guard and the police who were who were really creating disorder and who were sowing fear and who were preventing people from helping each other. Mm-hmm. So very similar to the story you ended up telling then. In absolutely. Ways. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. And so I wrote, so that was sort of the beginning of, that was the beginning of my research for this. And that really framed, I mean, in the book, I actually, I actually start, the introduction starts with a discussion about Katrina. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, so it really framed all of my work was thinking about contemporary disaster. And, and in the United States, that particularly often means hurricanes, which are particularly a Southern thing. Mm-hmm. But the other answer is that I was 
writing the dissertation at Duke. And the, the triangle has this really remarkable collection of, of historians <clears throat> who are engaged in labor and civil rights history mm-hmm. in a way that is very much about creating a usable past. That mm-hmm. North Carolina has the lowest union density rate in the country. And that is on that's sort of, you can't be a labor historian in North Carolina, even if you're studying Massachusetts and Nova Scotia. You can't be a labor historian in North Carolina without being very aware of that and about mm-hmm. thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think is really important and that came out of that experience of living and working in the South was that we need to be thinking about new ways of organizing and new ways of of building a, a, a culture of solidarity, which may not be workplace-based or mm-hmm. which may not be a NLRB-recognized collective bargaining agent. Mm-hmm. And I think that the the way that you see people come together and practice solidarity and build on that solidarity after disasters can offer clues about how to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The idea of disaster citizenship where after a disaster, people renegotiate and contest what it means to be part of society and what citizenship should be. That I, I think, I hope that that can be um, not just useful in after a literal disaster, after a, a hurricane or an earthquake or whatever, but that that can be helpful to think about how we should be rebuilding a labor movement everywhere, but particularly in the South. Okay, and I think that's a really uh, that's a really great place, perhaps to to end our discussion today with bringing your story from the early 20th century to, you know, issues that we're thinking about now in the early 21st century about contemporary disaster relief and um, and contemporary labor politics and organizing. Jacob Remus, thank you very much for talking about disaster citizenship with us on Working History, and we'll be looking forward to your next project. Great, thanks. It was a lot of fun. Thank you again to Jacob Remus, Assistant Professor of Public Affairs and History at SUNY Empire State College. His book is Disaster Citizenship, Survivors, Solidarity, and Power in the Progressive Era, published by the University of Illinois Press. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Visit us online and become a member at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. 